0: Welcome to Biographicon.
1: Welcome to Biographicon, the series that casts new light on little known figures from the 18th century north. In this episode, I've travelled to Durham to talk with Dr. Richard Pears about the Northeast's first professional architect, William Newton. So thank you, Richard, for joining Biographical. Thank you. Well, Richard, the first thing I'd like to know is who was William Newton and when did you first hear about him?
0: William Newton was baptised in Newcastle in 1730 and he died in Newcastle in 1798, so he covers a significant part of the 18th century. He started off as a, a joiner, had been able to trace his career from age 13 all the way through as a trainee joiner to becoming an architect in 1760 and then working on buildings, uh, churches, country houses, civic buildings. I first became aware of his name. I had an interest in architectural history, and reading Pevsner's uh, Architectural History of Northumberland, the Buildings of England series, I knew about John Dobson, and I knew about some of the other names, like Vanbrugh. but I kept seeing this name, William Newton, coming up, and I thought, I know nothing about this person. So then did a bit more research and started finding out that actually he was quite a prolific architect in the region and very much involved in the social life of the region, in the economy. Uh, And I found some of the connections socially that he had quite fascinating how a, a young working lad could become this very eminent architect. And that's the phrase he was described as repeatedly as an eminent architect. And something of his status, I think, is reflected by the fact that when he died in 1798, he was buried inside St Andrew's Church in Newcastle in one of the chapels to the left of the altar. So if you think Charles Averson is buried in the graveyard, Newton, who died later, has this spot in the Athol Chantry, one of the, the original founders' parts of the church. So it gives you a sense that he, he must have been seen somebody of some importance.
1: So how many of William Newton's buildings are, are still standing? What can we see today?
0: There's a good proportion of his buildings still standing. If you go to Newcastle, for example, you can see the assembly rooms, one of the the principal jewels of the town. You can see St Anne's Church, the first classical style church in Newcastle to the east of Newcastle. Uh, That's still open and, and functioning as a church. You've got Charlotte Square, the first completed square of houses in Newcastle on that London model of elite housing in terraces around the communal gardens and Newton had two houses there so living alongside these elite clients who are buying the houses. Further afield you can see Howick Hall that's open as gardens although much of the hall was, was burnt out and rebuilt. The side that Newton built the principal south elevation is still there. Other houses are open to the public or the gardens are things like Blagdon where he worked as a young man is, is open for the gardens. Capheaton Hall is often open there they some of the ways I've got in to see these houses is by going on these days to just take a picture and introduce myself to the owners. And some of them can be seen from public paths and roads. So Hebben Hall for the Ellisons, that's that's visible from, from the public road. But actually, a lot of his houses are not publicly accessible because they're fulfilling the function today that he designed them to do in the 1700s as comfortable, sizable houses for wealthy individuals. So there are many that uh, still have their lodge at the entrance of the estate and you don't get to see the house because it's now owned by a wealthy person. Perhaps it's still the same family, so the Ords still live on the Whitfield estate that Newton built for them. You know, So so they're there and um, you can see images of them, but they're private houses, so you've got to get permission to go and see them. But they're, I think it's interesting, they're fulfilling the same functions today that they were designed to do, which is something of an achievement, I would I would think.
1: So, Richard, you're the first person to really study the life of William Newton. Why do you think he hasn't been researched before? I think
0: he's been there as an incidental figure. But one of the the developments in the profession of architecture was that the idea of the architect as an artist without any connection to the building trade is the one that wins out at the end of the 18th century particularly in the example of Sir John Soane who really becomes the the lecturer uh, in architecture at the Royal Academy and it's his ideas he comes up with this statement that the architect has to be the independent arbiter between the client on the one hand and the mechanic on the other so he's essentially denying that the mechanic has any kind of artistic ability and when the Institute of British Architects is founded in the 1830s. They stipulate that no one can be a member of the architecture uh, profession if they have any connection to the building trades. So they essentially cut themselves off. And this idea of the architect as the artist is the one that, that continues. Because what they're seeking to do is to create a profession for the sons of gentlemen. They don't want them going into trade. They don't want them getting their hands dirty. They want an intellectual profession that will stand alongside the established professions of the law and medicine and and the church, which is where traditionally sons of of gentry and and wealthy people had gone. So there is this tendency to to then label the people who were from the building trades, builder architects or just builders and and deny them the, the name of architect. So to some extent, Newton suffers from this idea that he's just a builder, not an architect. But I think we should go back to what the contemporary descriptions were. In 1754, the uh, Swinburne's of Capheaton had new wings added to their mansion house. They describe Mr Newton architect. Newton himself called himself an architect from 1760. That's written in the, uh, the Quarter Sessions books when they're employing him to refit the Moot Hall with this ancient great hall of the medieval castle that, that is just refitted every so often and it serves as the Azizes, it serves as a court, it serves as an auction house, it serves as a theatre and Newton comes in th- from 1760 onwards to just refit it every time there's a, there's an Azize coming. But they call him an architect and in the, the, the obituaries they all call him an architect as well. So I think we, we should go with what the people at the time thought an architect was.
1: And you argue that in many cases it was actually local figures like Newton who were carrying out the work of more famous architects
0: in the period. These leading architects, the, the more prominent ones like Vanbrugh and and Adam, might very very rarely, maybe once a year, visit the site. Vanbrugh perhaps saw the site of Seton Delaval Hall two or three times at most, and and uh, you know Adam dispensed his drawings often done by others and he finished off his original designs and he posted them out to people. What they tended to do was employ a local man to superintend the works most of the time. So Vanbrugh had William Etty of York who was a very good architect in his own right. There are several buildings across Yorkshire just by Etty. The church in Sunderland uh, was probably by Etty as well and Robert Adam employed John Patterson in Edinburgh and James Mesmer in the Scottish Borders to to do a lot of that work. So these men were architects in their own right, working locally, but also were used as the sort of executive architects by these people who were really trying to focus their business on getting as many patrons as possible in London. Some of the early architects who William Newton built for uh, in London, a man called Daniel Garrett, it's very, very clear that This architect, who was a protege of Lord Burlington, the Apollo of the arts in the 18th century, who sponsored music and opera and theatre and and literature, but particularly Palladian architecture. He had a protege called Daniel Garrett, uh, and he designed several country houses in, in the 1740s and 1750s in the northeast. But it's clear he might have come to the northeast maybe once or twice. He had a practice in Yorkshire, very friendly with the Earl and Countess of Northumberland. But, for example, one of his most important public buildings, the Newcastle Infirmary, which stood where the Newcastle Life Centre is today, constructed 1751 to 1753. Garrett must never have seen the site because he sent a plan for what he presumed was a flat piece of ground. The ground fell 14 feet north to south, an entire story in height. So you can imagine when the building committee got this plan from this eminent link to the leading aesthetic theorist of the time. Well, what do we do? You know, we're going to have to modify it somehow. And that's where people like Robert Newton, William's father, came in and had the ability to redesign that and then build garrett's building above it
1: so william newton would have got would he have had experience building for example with the newcastle infirmary
0: yes uh, newton's father uh, robert was the infirmary inspector so the the essentially the clerk of works and the infirmary came after several buildings that that robert and william newton had constructed to daniel garrett's designs from 1743 up to 1751, when the infirmary began, they worked at the Gibside estate. They worked at Fenham Hall, uh, west of Newcastle, uh, Nunick Hall in the North tyne and also Dunstan Hill for Rafe Carr, the merchant, uh, near Wickham. And then they they came to work at uh, the infirmary. So they had considerable experience. It's quite clear that uh, the the leading members of the building committee were Rafe Carr of of Dunstan Hill and Wickham, lancer Allgood of Nunick, and. Uh, Bose was involved as one of the president's infirmary and also William Orde Fenham. And you can guess that they presumably said, well, we know exactly who can do this. There's a man, Robert Newton, he can do this. So Robert Newton and his son have been building, involved in the building trade from 1743. Certainly I've got document proof of that. And then the infirmary comes along and Robert Newton is the clerk who works and he's the one who brings all of these different crafts people together to turn a two-dimensional drawing for the wrong site into a fully functioning hospital for the the people of of Northumberland, Durham and and, and Newcastle. So very, very prestigious building. And William was learning alongside his father from the age of 13 about joinery initially, but then all of the other aspects of large scale building works. And so uh, we begin to see after the completion of the infirmary, William Newton goes on to be the highest paid craftsman at Blagden Hall, the Ridleys' house. Again, the Ridleys are one of the patrons of the infirmary. So you see these clients who are very closely related in business and family employing this group of craftsmen to, to work on their houses or the public buildings that they're sponsoring. And that's how William Newton gets into this. And if you look at the subscribers to the infirmary, they really set up William Newton in his career for the next 25 years. And then... He builds the Newcastle Assembly Rooms, 1774 to 1776, and that's the midpoint boost to his career because all of those subscribers, many of those people, employ him to build their country houses between 1776 and his death in 1798. So there's these two signature public buildings that really introduce him to this group of patrons who want other buildings, private or public, uh, to be involved in.
1: And am I right in thinking that the Blackett family is behind the Assembly Room, which is... Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of the elite in Newcastle in this period and what that means
0: yes, so newcastle is a is an interesting example of in the same way you could probably say this about Durham. they have almost medieval institutions still in charge, and despite all of the political turmoil of the eighteenth century and the nineteenth century. In Newcastle, that elite remain in charge until the 1830s with the, the changes in local government. Uh, so the same names, the Blackets, the Ords, the Ridleys, the Andersons are involved for two, three hundred years in the management of Newcastle. So how did they do this? Well, they are members of the trading guilds, in particular to the Merchant Adventurers and the Hostmen. And they have the monopoly awarded by Queen Elizabeth of exporting goods from the River Tyne and particularly in the case of the horsemen exporting coal, which is the black gold that makes so many fortunes in this period. And the hostman and the merchant adventurers dominate the Newcastle corporation. So in the 18th century, uh, I think there's only one or two mayors of Newcastle throughout that entire century who were not either a hostman or a merchant adventurer. So they control who is the mayor, they control the aldermen, the members of the aldermanic bench. And most of the the common council have some kind of connection to these two leading guilds. So if you want to have any kind of political role in Newcastle, you have to belong to one of these guilds. And of course, these people are very good at keeping it in the family, so they intermarry with one another, so that the money is not dispersed, the power is not dispersed. And entry into this, as in a medieval guild, is either by patrimony, because your father was a member of the guild, or you serve an apprenticeship and there's very clear limits on the numbers of apprentices that are taken in at any one time to again maintain this this oligarchy essentially that is rather Janus like it it rules the economy and it rules the politics of the town and, and in their minds there is no difference between the two you know what is good for them is good for the town so we have this almost medieval guild system stays until the 1830s. I mean, you could even argue after that, many of the names are still involved in Newcastle politics well throughout the 19th and early 20th centuries as well. But certainly in the 18th century, if you want to get ahead in Newcastle, you have to be a member of these guilds. And that gives you connections, business, familial, but also socially as well, that people can use to support people they they want to to give patronage to. And and William Newton is a very good example of that, of somebody who attracted the eye of people like the the Ords, the Bowes, who employed him for for over 40 years on buildings on their estates or buildings they're associated with. So it's this key getting in with the in crowd, essentially, who are running this this town.
1: Speaking of the king of Newcastle,
0: Blackett. Mm -hmm. yes.
1: Now this enormous house and land estate really in, is is I think perhaps one of the biggest in the country uh, inside the walls of a town is it not does that have an effect on the development of Newcastle as a town in terms of urban renaissance and so on Oh
0: absolutely you you have this this very large area um 11 acres and and you're right it is said to be the largest private estate within a walled town in in Britain You know, you have to think of things like there's a similar residence and gardens in Prague, for example, below the castle of a a nobleman there. You know, but certainly that has a major influence because the north side of the Blackett estate is the town walls. So they're not ready to knock down the town walls. And you have this large area within the walls that is just occupied by Sir Walter Blackett, his wife and their servants. It's quite shocking, really, when you think about 11 acres devoted to that. And then you read in people like Bourne's history of Newcastle, 1730s, Brand in the 1780s, referring to the thousands of people who are living in tenements on the chairs off the quayside and the, the appalling sanitation and illness and things that, that attend those people's lives. It's this, this really quite shocking disparity between haves and have-nots there. But in t- architecturally, yes, it very much holds back the development of Newcastle because that could have been And when Blackett died in 1777 the land was actually offered by his heir Sir Thomas Blackett who lived in Yorkshire and he offered it to the town Newcastle but they declined and so it becomes bought by George Anderson who is a a builder and he then keeps it as a private house as well and that land is then left undeveloped and it's really only when Anderson's descendants decide to sell it that they offer it to Newcastle in the time of Richard Granger, and we have the city of palaces today. So you really wonder, had Newcastle Corporation seized this opportunity in 1777, we would be talking about Newton Town, not Granger Town. Yes, a a great what if there, you know, if they'd taken that opportunity in 1777. The other thing that strikes me about this is up until the 1780s, Newcastle is divided literally by a large ravine through the centre of it, the Lort Burn, which runs through the town. It was culverted over at the river level down on the sandhill where the Guildhall was. But by the 18th century, it's a public disgrace. It's an open sewer. People are throwing rubbish in there. And it's not till the 1780s that the corporation does anything about it. Now... It's not that they didn't have the technology to deal with this. These are the people who are building railways and wagonways. So these are people who are quite capable of culverting rivers and burns and building over them if they want to, if it's in their commercial interest to do so. And they don't do this in the centre of Newcastle until the 1780s, despite complaints about the filth and, and the, the eyesore. And there's the difficulties of getting east-west across the town, which are still by two medieval stone bridges, low and high bridge, the names survive in Newcastle streetscape today. And it's not till 1780s they do anything about this. Part of the impetus there is looking north to what is happening in Edinburgh, where this is the period, the 1760s onwards. Edinburgh, of course, the old town is on that volcanic plug of rock. Then there's the Norlock, a boggy area which they begin draining from the 1760s and then they lay out the new town from the 1760s as well. And I think this is really the prompt to Newcastle. Well, if you're such a great commercial center, how can they do this in Edinburgh on such a massive scale but you can't do something about this this piddling little burn running through the middle of your town. So I think it's there is an interest in doing developments that suit them, but it's it's more often it's when there's a commercial reason for them doing so. And in the end the commercial argument wins the case about the Lord Burton that they can lay out new streets and, and shops by doing so and improve communication through the town and improve trade. So they're not spending the money in the town on large scale improvements. It's not till the 1780s onwards that you begin to see new streets laid out along what's now Northumberland Street, Vine Street, Ridley Place and others outside the town walls of Newcastle in, on anything like a, a large scale.
1: So you you argue in opposition almost to what is a common argument about urban uh, development, which is Peter Borsi's English urban renaissance. You argue that, in fact, in the northeast, there was really a rural renaissance. And could you talk a little bit about that and how that relates to what you've just been speaking of? Yeah.
0: So if I start with, with the urban renaissance, it, it, it's, it strikes me that Borsi's theory of new ventures, new streets, uh, of, of fine houses... Of new amenities like theatres and assemblies, uh, churches. Yes, that happens in the northeast, but you know the two principal towns, Newcastle and then Durham, the centre of the, the the bishopric, are very much still within their medieval street frame. Uh, still, Newcastle still retains its town walls and the and the gates that block access into the town into the early years of the nineteenth century. So they're very much having. Some developments, but they are developments that suit the interests of the elite. So if it's something like an assembly rooms that, that they will benefit from, yes, they will subscribe to that. Now, interestingly, when the assembly rooms was being built, there was some doggerel in the local press contrasting the money being spent by the corporation and these very wealthy landowners on building assembly rooms for their own use at a time that the Tyne Bridge, which had been destroyed in the flood of 1771, had only been replaced by a temporary wooden structure. So this is saying, well, what is important for the trade of the town? It's the bridge that we need, not an assembly rooms. And so we see developments uh, happening, but they are very much things that the elite want. And I think that's because these wealthy members of the elite are spending money on their private estates. And this is where Newton comes in because he is building country houses for these people. And the country houses give them the space to entertain, to impress uh, their peers and potential clients, of course, thinking about commercialism. Um, they are polite and commercial people, of course, in, in, in the famous phrase, but they can do so in circumstances that they control. So they're able to buy up land that is often waste or more land. This is the period of enclosures as well. So you begin to see more land being brought into productive use. Britain, of course, is at war throughout most of the 18th century, has to feed itself. So there is an impetus, a commercial impetus, to, to bring more land into agricultural use to feed the country. But all that is profit. It's more profit for these people. So they have an income from coal mining, from a trade in Newcastle or on the River Weir. But they are also seeking a more private space for sociability, for entertainment, a more select group of peers, of their friends and clients. And that's what the country houses that Newton is building provides for them. And they can control everything. In some cases, they, they remove villages uh, that are inc- inconveniently in the way. You know, Belsey Hall is a late example in the 18th century, but Raby Castle did it in the in the early 18th century. And there are plenty of examples of, of villages being removed outside the parkland so the country house is surrounded by gardens, surrounded by parkland, and then you have a wall that keeps out the villagers and the peasants, unless they're actually working inside the country on the country house. So you get this much more select space for sociability. There, there's a few examples. One, just to, to, to conclude with, the very end of Newton's life, 1794, he designed a house called Dissington Hall up near Ponteland in Newcastle for Edward Collingwood, very eminent Northumbrian name. Edward Collingwood was the recorder in Newcastle, but he was also a 57 year old bachelor and he lived in a house in Churton in North Shields, which he never left. He built what was essentially a trophy house to take members of the Common Council of Newcastle and his clients, he was a solicitor as well as being the recorder, out to his country estate where they could go hunting. And so that is just gratuitous expense, really. He has a country house already that he lives in, he has a house in Newcastle, and this is just a a one to show off essentially and Newton designed this for him in, in beautiful building that's still there today. So I think there's this interest in rural areas as opportunities for commercial advantage and that leads to what I've called a rural renaissance because much of this wasteland, moorland, villages that have become depopulated are seized upon as opportunities for new country houses, perhaps rebuilding a church, setting up a manufactory, and then gaining further wealth and a space for socialising for the, the elite.
1: And aside from Newcastle, in, for example, in Sunderland, there's an example with Roland Burden, isn't there?
0: Very good example, yes. So Roland Burden's family start off as grocers in Newcastle. They're involved in the law as well. And they buy a, an area described as waste called Castle Eden in County Durham between Sunderland and Hartlepool. And there's a ruined church and there's the site of, a, of a, a medieval earthwork castle and there's not much else there. So they buy this land and Newton is brought in to rebuild the church and to build a new country house looking like a castle because that's the name. If you don't own a castle, you, you build one that looks like it to pretend you've been there for centuries. But he also opens a sailcloth manufactory because you have the ports of Sunderland and Hartlepool. So this is an advantage uh, close by. And they're involved in related industries, brewing, rope works, all of these things that are that he sees an advantage. If I have this piece of land in this part of County Durham, then there's two very important ports there that I can be engaged in that trade. And engage in the, the, the social life and economy of those trades, as well as my family's roots in Newcastle as well. And of course, burdens are very much involved in not just in the, the law, but you know, they're, they're very important in the, the financing of founding um, bank in Newcastle because there's this need for money to for these large-scale port improvements, for the building of turnpike roads that are really, again, this part of the, the rural Renaissance, you see. The burdens sponsoring turnpikes uh, throughout County Durham to get their products to the ports to bring things that they need into their lands. And so you have building of bridges, building of roads, and building of wagonways for coal, all part of this infrastructure that is developing throughout the 18th century.
1: And Burton's interesting as well, isn't he? Because he's the first MP for Durham who doesn't come from the aristocracy.
0: That's a very good point because hitherto you have the the Edens and the Bowes uh, who've tied up much of the political control as well as the bishop of, of course in County Durham so Burden and his father and, and uh, the family really are quite fascinating for how they move into this political scene and he has very very important connections architecturally he's a, he goes on the grand tour and is a good friend of Sir John Soane the very eminent architect but locally he gets involved in not just the, the economy of the town and aspects of sociability but one important factor I think for him is his involvement in Freemasonry and Freemasonry is something that really, until the last uh, perhaps you know, 10, 20 years, has not been fully developed, just how prevalent Freemasonry was, and how many of the elites in the Northeast were members of the Fre- of Freemasonic lodges. And the connections that that made, what fascinates me about it is the breakdown of social barriers as well. I'll give you two examples. In Newcastle, the St John's Lodge, which stood on Friars Street, possibly a building designed by Newton. He lived nearby, but that uh, included among its members Sir Walter Blackett, Bart, King of Newcastle, who lived in uh, the new house, um, or Grey Friars, and later Anderson Place, this enormous house in 11 acres of gardens. And he was a member of this lodge and marched in procession with tradesmen, butchers, bakers. People who you think he would not allow through the front door of his grand mansion or to ever visit Wallington, you know, they'd have to go in the tradesman's entrance to those. You know, he is marching through Newcastle in civic processions in full regalia. And going back to Burden, you know, Burden's tremendous sponsorship of the Iron Bridge at Sunderland is a really phenomenal achievement engineering-wise, but it's also seen as a huge sign of the the skill of Freemasons. And I did some research a few years ago at the Freemasons Library uh, and Museum in London. And there you have uh, records from many different lodges from around the country that sent members to take part in this procession of 400 Freemasons. They went to a church service and then marched through Sunderland, went to see the laying of foundation stone and then went for a dinner afterwards. So you have these people from all around the country coming to see this example of Freemasons genius in in producing this building and there is Burden centre stage in this and he's connected through his Freemasonry with all these people he's connected with them economically through his businesses he's connected socially by having a country house and the the ways of entertaining people and fitting in in so many different levels.
1: Was William Newton a Freemason himself?
0: I've not been able to identify that. And and I did ask the Freemasons Library to search for me and they they couldn't find any evidence. I think it's interesting that if he wasn't, he certainly knew a lot of people who were. And that, I think, is, again, another sign of perhaps this openness to people of skill. John Rule talks about the, the currency of skill. Uh, so if you have an ability, then that can in many cases overcome what might be seen as social barriers. So if you have somebody who you know can design you a country house or somebody who you know can build the grand assembly rooms for you or somebody who can build a bridge on the turnpike that you're laying out, then that's somebody who you're prepared to support, to sponsor, to be seen with. You know, Again, think about the assembly rooms. Newton there uh, is a man who started off as a young joiner, a working lad, but there he is as one of the proprietors of the assembly rooms alongside people like the aristocracy, the Bishop of Durham, members of the corporation, knights of the realm. They're all happy to share this stage with him uh, and be part of this social network and this venue. So I think it's this ability to fit in, I think, as part of his character, that if he wasn't a Freemason, he had skills that those who were recognised and were important to bring him into their networks and provide him with work and patronage.
1: Reading your work, you seem to be challenging some of the more established theories, let's say. For example, John Brewer's theory of cultural 18th century cultural development tends to be very London-centric with this sort of dissemination uh, going through the provinces. But your argument is very much that, or appears to be very much, that its culture is emerging locally. Would you say that's true?
0: I think I wouldn't talk about culture or identity in the singular people have different aspects of their character and of their life that they present, perform at different points and with different people. So many of the gentry and the aristocracy are certainly very much London-focused. They spend a fair much time down in the parliamentary season, the London season. They go to Bath. They go to, to the gardens at Ranley and Vauxhall and Marylebone in London. But there are also a wide range of other cultures. There's Local culture, if you take, for example, the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland, who start off as a baronet in Yorkshire, and then he becomes the Earl, and she becomes the Countess of Northumberland, and then they become the Duke and Duchess of Northumberland. They have an international reputation. They are ambassadors, viceroys of Ireland. They are the leaders of taste in many ways in the mid-18th century. But she is very aware that she has a local identity. She is a Percy she starts a process throughout the 18th century of rebuilding Annick Castle to be this ancestral home of the Percy's that it is today. Remember, they have Northumberland House in London, one of the grandest townhouses in the country. They have Sion Palace outside of London. They didn't need to come here. They had houses in Yorkshire. They didn't need to do anything with Annick Castle. They could have left it as the mouldering ruin that Canaletto pictured it, but they don't. She throws huge amounts of money in there because she wants to have this local identity. She wants she and her husband, who's a local, as a Yorkshire baronet, to be the heirs of the Percy's, that whole local, that Northumbrian warrior, sort of mythology that she's trying to appeal for. And to do that, she has to have a castle in Northumberland. And and so there's a huge amounts of money spent on that building. So there are people who have an international, a national cultural leadership, also drawing very, very strongly upon their regional identity. And I think that's an interesting thing about architecture as well that we have Horace Walpole who is turning a farmhouse into a a gothic mansion, a sort of castle building at Strawberry Hill. Well if you're a landowner in Northumberland sitting in your genuine medieval tower or castle you don't need bits of plasterboard to make it look like a castle. You have one. So they have this identity as well and many Clients of Newton, like the Crusters of Craster, have been there since the 1400s. The Middletons of Belsay have been there since the 14th century. The, the, the Saurvans of Croxdale. Many of these families have very, very long roots in the region and they're not just going to abandon that to flatten their, their medieval building to get a stylish uh, Palladian or neoclassical mansion. There's some really interesting buildings in Northumberland that are both, where you know, Craster Tower, they keep and restore the medieval tower Going to the extent in the 1780s, of putting Gothic Venetian windows into it. But then they build a brand new classical house on the site where the hall had been attached to it. So it, what does that mean? Well, to, to somebody from London might think, well, what, on earth, what? did you run out of money and couldn't demolish the tower? No, they're saying we have lived here for hundreds of years. We are the Crasters of Craster. The Creswells of Creswell the same, you know. So there's a reason why these people retain their buildings and they just adapt them to modern living. But the visual message of that earlier building is vital in terms of lineage and the right to rule and, and your political life that these are the landed families who have been here for a long time. And they've this new culture, you know, this polite culture is just one strand of their personalities. They've often dominate their local area economically and socially. They're sheriffs, they're justices of the peace. So they don't want to just abandon that and be yet another Gentlemen wandering around Bath in in the polite clothing of the time, you know, they've got a lineage in their names that the Duchess of Northumberland wants to to recreate, just as these other families do as well. So I find that really fascinating, this duality or, or multiple cultures that an individual can hold on to.
1: So Richard, you've obviously got a serious interest in local regional history and I know you were the president of the Society of Antiquaries at Newcastle for some years. So can you give us a sense of how valuable the study of local history is?
0: I think local history is tremendously important because I think it's important to think that there's always more than one story. It allows us to test the national narrative But you've got to have the people who go and do the work, the deep, detailed work of looking in archives, of looking in texts and interpret them, interrogating them to see, well, is there a different story here? And if there's a different story, that's fine, because people are not one dimensional. People, as I've said, could have different personalities that they perform if they're in the House of Commons as an MP. They might perform a different personality when they're speaking to Keelmen in Newcastle to try and persuade them to go back to work because they're on strike you know they might have a different perspective when they're talking about their grand tour experience so there are parts of the narrative that are shared but there are parts that are different and that's the beauty of local history in identifying the difference that actually it's not just one single story and it's something that we can keep challenging you know to give a very powerful example. Think about the interest in the presence of black people in British society and the work that's gone on in recent years to really reveal those people's lives and how fundamental they were to much of of Georgian society. So, you know, if we'd accepted the narrative from the 1950s or 60s, those people would be anonymous now we see much more, much richer sense of what they contributed. And the same is true of working people, the same is true of women and children who need bringing out into the story as well. It's not just all about great white men version of history. So I think local history is really very, very important and, and I hope that people will go and find the, the, the buzz, the bug to go and look in their local archives and go and use their local libraries and look at the local studies material and see what does that teach them about own heritage. And it's always struck me this idea of provincialism or parochialism that people can sometimes be accused of if they focus on the regional. But the regions don't exist in isolation either. To give you an example, the, the dining room at Wallington Country House, now owned by the National Trust, people can go and see this. You have there a room in a house on the moors of Northumberland that has plaster work by Swiss-Italian plasterers. It has fireplaces that came from London. It has Axminster carpets. It has Honduran mahogany for the doors, product of slavery. It has China from the continent. It has silverware from Britain and from the continent. You really have the British Empire and all these trading networks. there in one room if you choose to look, you know, instead of just, oh, it's another country house. Actually, it's not. It's telling us a great deal about the connections that people have and the different identities and links and networks they, they perform in.
1: So to sum up, do you think William Newton belongs in the biographical?
0: I think definitely. Obviously, I've spent a lot of my life researching him, but, but I think he's, he's a really interesting and useful figure for analysing so many aspects of 18th century uh, society, whether it's artistic in terms of the architecture and the influences that he uses, but also the influence that he has in terms of architectural styles in the region, uh, his role in the economy as somebody supporting the building trades, his role in sociability with involvement in the assembly rooms and all of the connections that come from that. The ability of a of a 13-year-old apprentice joiner to gain the trust of gentry and people who will employ him for 40 years on their estates from generation to generation. Clearly, they saw something in his abilities. One of the founders of the Literature and Philosophical Society, it's been possible to trace some of his subscriptions to books. So he's very much... Part of every aspect—social, economic, artistic—life of the region, and the obituaries that are written for him after his death in the Literary Philosophical Society pays tribute to him. The Newcastle Courant has an obituary. The Gentleman's Magazine has an obituary. They all refer to him as this eminent architect, and I think that's how we should see him: somebody who had the trust, who was a friend of who was a partner to many of these great uh, developments throughout Georgian Britain and particularly in the northeast of England.
1: Thank you very much, Richard, for that guide to the life of William Newton. Thank you. Thank you. By separating into one biographicon, this peculiar class of lives, a philanthropic emulation would be excited. A debt of social gratitude would be discharged. A trophy to patriotism would be erected, and an instructive knowledge of the present state of nations and the gradual concatenation of intercourse would be diffused. Literature should rear altars to the missionaries of human civilization.